Welcome back, uh, Professor Alex Rina. Uh, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I'm the Professor of Finance at the, the University of Wollongong and the Senior Deputy Vice Chancellor. Uh, I, I'm an active teacher. Uh, I'm an active researcher in finance and um, I have an administrative role uh, to develop um, the global positioning of the university. Well, that's quite impressive. I still remember you at a time when you were a professor during conferences. You were always impressive. You've always had a major contribution in finance. Can you tell us a bit more about finance? Sure. Yeah. So um, I've spent my I've spent thirty five years um, teaching about finance, researching financial markets, and indeed working uh, in financial markets. Um, to me, finance is all about um, uh, raising capital to make things happen uh, in the economy, build buildings, build factories, build infrastructure. Um, all those things require funding, money, to make them happen. And finance and financial markets uh, are all about how you raise capital to make those things happen. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of intermediaries involved in that, a lot of institutions. Mm. Um, and we can get into some of that if you like. Okay. Oh, sure, please uh, tell, tell us more about this. Yeah. Into so m maybe from a, a student career perspective, um, oh, uh, finance is uh, obviously one of the um, more enticing careers um, that students love. And I've, I've always thought that there's three kind of career choices that uh, students um, are particularly attracted to. Um, one of those is stockbroking, uh, one of those is investment banking, and the other is funds management. But there's many, many more career types um, uh, that make up finance and financial markets. But if we take those three, which are the, the revered ones um, from students, I worked in stockbroking. And stockbroking is just uh, all about um, the intermediaries that are involved in buying and selling shares. Mm. Um, so if you're a company, you sell shares to raise capital. Um, usually, um, uh, there's, there's a, it's a, now increasingly, there's a stockbroker involved. Um, and then the next career choice, investment banking. Uh, the bread and butter of investment bankers, two things. One is mergers and acquisitions. So company A, takes over company B, you need someone who's going to advise on an appropriate price, uh, a financial strategy for the acquisition, uh, and then execute the acquisition and get involved in the negotiations mm. uh, and the processes that you undergo in, in an M&A, merger, mergers and acquisitions. Um, so that's one of the bread and butter elements for investment bankers. The other is um, capital raising uh, or initial public offerings. Uh, listing on stock exchanges. So uh, investment bankers will advise companies who want to seek additional capital uh, as to the best way of doing it. I have a question for you on IPOs, right? Yeah. So I hear you can make a lot of money on the IPOs. How much can you make in a day you know, on a good one? I, no, yeah. There's no free lunches in finance. Come on, you know better than that. There's no free lunches. There's no money machines. But um, there, there used to be, it, it used to be thought that if you could 
get in on every IPO that is being um, brought to market over a one-year period, every single one, mm. and then flip it within days of acquiring shares through an initial public offering, mm. um, that you could make considerable sums of money over those few days mm. in the order of 10 to 20%. I, I think that's a furphy. The, the problem with that strategy is one, uh, it means it, it, that you have to be able to get in on all the IPOs. Mm. Obviously, some IPOs are hard to get uh, to participate in, or you only get very small allocation of shares. They're the ones that will do extremely well, mm. and the ones that are easy to get shares in are the, the duds. So it's a you know it's uh, so there's a theoretical, and then there's the reality. So. But anyway, so the, the second career choice we were talking about was investment banking. And then there's the third career choice, which is uh, funds management or money management. And that's where um, you, you either take um, the savings of individuals directly or uh, wholesale savings from various institutions and you invest those on behalf of uh, the customers. So stockbroking, investment banking, funds management, Everyone used to want to be an investment banker first, a stockbroker second, and if they couldn't uh, get into those two, would, would settle for funds management. The world's changed, um, but they're still the three most revered careers in finance. And obviously, people want those careers because they pay really well. So that's a driver of uh, student choice. So when you're saying paying very well, I remember watching a documentary where a financier was talking about he made, say, 200 million on a project, okay? Uh, but he built nothing. So nobody can see what he's done because he was just a man behind doing all this. Mm. But he says an engineer will get paid maybe 5 million, but they can see all the magnificent uh, architectural design that they've done. Mm. Is it true in Australia or anywhere for people to earn that kind of money? Or what would be a realistic sort of... Um, some of money that some good uh, managers will get. It, it changes all the time. That's a that's a tough question. Um, different financial centres pay differently. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was an attempt by major global banks to pay a global rate. It didn't work. Um, so it, it's that's a very difficult question to answer. But we do know that those three careers do pay extremely well and people that work in those areas um, are the highest earners. And what about hedge fund managers? Are they any good? Or? I think hedge fund managers are just part of the money management um, sector that they invest in alternative assets. Mm. So rather than traditional stocks and bonds, mm. um, they'll, they'll chase all kinds of derivatives or um, futures options, exotic uh, uh, derivatives um, uh, in seeking to make money. Mm. Um, and another important difference between traditional funds management and um, hedge funds is hedge funds only promise that they'll make money. Um, whether they do or not depends on how skillful they are, but mm. they only promise they make money. Um, whereas typical fund managers or the traditional fund managers try and outperform an index. Um, so, and the index depends on the jurisdiction in which they're working. So, um, yeah, lots of variety there. Oh, fund manager. Um, 
So in Dubai, um, you, you, you've got um, a lot of fund managers and they are promising all sorts of returns, but they say, we can't tell you what we are doing. So do you think that they are investing in, um, in areas where they can't tell because if they tell, everybody will go there and there won't be any money? Or do you think they're doing something not so conventional? This, no, this is a global phenomenon. So um, I'm a fund manager. The, the extent to which I'm able to generate money for you depends on how I go about doing it. If everyone knows how I do it, then I'm irrelevant. Yeah. So um, they'll tell you, they'll give you a, a sense for um, how they're approaching it, what they're investing in. They'll give you uh, a historical track record um, uh, but they're not going to tell you the detail of how they pick stocks, pick bonds, pick asset classes in order to outperform because that's their, that's proprietary to them. Um, so I, they're not doing anything untoward. Um, they're just protecting their intellectual property. Mm. Um, so there is absolutely a leap of faith in choosing a fund manager, um, but historical track records, the fund managers usually are, are, are pretty pretty good. They, don't, they can't promise a future tra uh, track record, but the historical track record usually tells you how good they've been, historically at least, uh, at investing money. Okay. So you've been uh, advising students, academics, mentoring lots of academics in your career, and you've seen students over the last 30 years doing very well in some areas and you've seen the career trend changes in our field as well. Mm. So now, if I take you back to when you were 18 years old yeah. and you're about to go to university, mm. and which course would you choose and which career path would you choose if you were to redo it again? Yeah. So, so I, as an undergraduate student, I studied accounting and economics. I would and uh, I was always interested in working in finance. And when I finished my studies, I did go to work in finance. I went to work in stockbroking. I loved it, um, but I loved being an educator more. Um, I would not change that. So if my ambition was to work in finance, I would still be uh, keen on studying accounting and finance, because that's great preparation to, to work in. Um, all those career choices, stockbroking, um, uh, funds management, investment banking, you absolutely need to know your way around a set of financial statements and then you need to know how markets work. Yeah. Um, but increasingly today, you also need to be very technology savvy. Um, so, you know, markets are becoming increasingly technologically driven. If we take, um, if we take uh, stock exchanges, for example, um, when I worked in stockbroking, you received an order by the phone um, and you entered that order into a, an electronic trading system manually. Today, 70% of trading in most markets around the world, United States, wherever, um, a lot of trading is algorithmic trading. Um, and algorithmic trading is a, a phenomena that's been around for about a decade and a bit. Computer programmed, attached to the the host computer of a stock exchange takes data in real time from the stock exchange. The computer makes a trading decision. Computer executes the order. 
without any human intervention at all. Algorithmic trading, welcome to a new world. If you have 70% of trading now being algorithmic trading, that means you've got computers trading against computers. Mm. So the world is a very, very different place to the one that I started in uh, in, in the 1990s. Um, but, um, but still traditional stockbroking, traditional stock picking in funds management and investment banking is still bread and butter of those is still, you need to know, well, have good accounting skills, you, just, you need to know your finance, but increasingly a bit more technology savvy. You know, I remember one of your seminar attended, I was quite inspired because I remember you being among the first Australian academic to be talking about this technology. And I think you showed us a picture we've back in the day in stock broking, uh, they had, they would hire Olympic champions to run to put their orders in first. And in today's dimension, it's more like how fast uh, your uh, technologies. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it getting better or is it getting worse in terms of? Um... So, so trading floors, the, the traditional trading floors, I think the only trading floor left in the world uh, is the New York Stock Exchange. And it's only a gimmick. Trading <laughs> floors don't really exist, but they've still got a bit of a trading floor. They still So trading floors used to be dominated by physical people, strong physical people because with loud voices. Because to execute an order, uh, you had to be strong, you had to be present, you had to be heard. Um, and speed was important too. So we call that latency, how long it takes to get an order to the marketplace, latency. Um, uh, your Olympic champion uh, who ran the order down to the, the pit, um, that was an attempt to get an order into the market really quickly um, to reduce latency. Um, and that latency was measured in seconds, possibly minutes back in the 90s. Now latency is measured in microseconds. So how quickly can an order get from the host computer to the, the exchange server uh, anything less than, anything more than about six or seven microseconds is inadequate. First to the market is first to get the trade, is first to make the money. So speed, it's all about speed. Um, uh, very, a very important uh, aspect, yeah. Oh, it's, it's like, you know, over and over we see it again in terms of technology uh, replacing humans. And at the same time, it creates so many opportunities for others to, to learn about new technology and be put in that position. And I see a similar trend at the moment. And I think in the 80s, people were talking about corporate, corporate social responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Today, we are talking about sustainability or stuff around the 17 United Nations SDGs. Um, where do they all fit? Is it as important as technology, you think? Yeah. No. In increasingly important. So to turn on renewable energy sources, the world is, world's got its problems, environmental problems. Um, to turn on renewable energy sources, you need money. Um, and um, there's, a, there's a branch of finance called sustainable finance. Um, and that's really about raising capital to fund projects that um, are environmentally friendly, in a sense. Um, so um, those projects are increasingly becoming important 
fossil fuels are being dialed down, renewable energy sources are being dialed up, and you need money to make, turn on those projects uh, that generate renewable energy sources. So um, I think the modern student needs to have a little bit of knowledge about that, that branch of um, finance that's growing in importance. Um, and um, uh, I think it'll become increasingly important, especially as the world gets warmer um, because of climate change, um, to, to think about that and, and to think about our future. So, um, yeah. Thank you. You know, um, you have an impressive career. I've said it many times, and I don't think I'll stop saying it either. And you've, you are a Fulbright scholar. Mm -hmm. And you've done a lot of research. You made a lot of contribution to the finance area. Would you like to tell us a bit more about your research? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so uh, my research focuses on market liquidity, this latency thing that you're thinking about. That's part of um, what my uh, research focuses on. But more recently, um, my research has been focused on uh, cybersecurity, um, actually cyber attacks. Um, so so the, 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 the contemporary research that I'm involved in seeks to understand the damage done by cyber attacks. And the reason I'm interested in damage is because if you understand the damage that your company can sustain from a cyber attack, well, that gives you an understanding of how important or how much to invest in cybersecurity. Because you can, you, can, um, you can almost invest or spend an infinite amount of money on cybersecurity solutions. And you've got to decide how much to spend as a, a leader of an organization. So, um, so the, the research I'm doing at the moment seeks to um, measure the typical damage done to a company as a consequence of a cyber attack with a view to formulating a sensible you know, cybersecurity policy. So. So I think um, we have a, a very similar problem in the UAE. So my understanding is uh, there were a lot of hacking incidents and typically they will hack mm. uh, banking institutions. Yeah. And once they've done that, um, the banking regulation has changed from, say, the central banks, mm. and they ask them to adopt a risk management strategy for... Uh, IT security, yeah. that kind of thing. It became mandatory into the financial servicing, services industry. Yeah. But we're seeing that the hacking hasn't stopped because now that uh, they've paid for the sandbox and the security system, mm -hmm. the hackers are moving to government institutions and others. Yeah. So where is this um, going? Finance is the most cyber attacked sector among, amongst any. Why? The answer is really easy because that's where the money is. So if you're a cyber criminal and you want to make money, you're going to attack uh, a, a bank or a financial organization uh, that stores financial information, credit card information of customers. You're not going to attack a, a charity. Um, <laughs> so, um, so it is the most cyber attacked sector uh, in any jurisdiction. Um, therefore, uh, I think the issue of cybersecurity is most critical for the financial services sector. Uh, they need to get on top of it. And the other thing about the financial services sector is when there's a breach that occurs, a breach to a bank, that's a really serious thing. I mean, the 
the damage, the money that the criminals can get away with is enormous. Breach to a university? Mm. I don't think the damage done uh, in that instance is as great. Well, there's no way it can be as great as a bank. So, so um, yeah, that's a little bit of perspective on the issue. I, I, I was talking to some bankers in, I think, Ethiopia, and I was telling them about the importance of having a risk management and doing a sandboxing, et cetera, et cetera to protect them. And they look at me and they say, no. And I said, why not? He's like, we have... Um, restriction on foreign exchange. Mm. So no matter what we do, we can't get it out of the country. We go, we'll stay in the country. Do you think sometimes regulations coming from the government can protect? No. I think that uh, cyber criminals are very, very clever. And they're always 10 paces ahead of any regulator. And if there's an electronic processing that's involved in anything, uh, any rule that attempts to stymie um, the the processing, cyber criminals will work out a way around it. So I don't think I don't think government regulation is is the key. It's important. It's an important element, but it's not it's not what's going to save banks from cyber attacks. Banks have to protect themselves, so they have to seize solutions to help protect their customers, their customers' money, their customers' futures. Um, you can't rely on regulation to do that. <laughs> that is extremely important these days, I believe. But what are the other areas that you've worked? So uh, now, contemporary, we can see that. But what was uh, the critical issues back in the day when you started your career and leading to today? Yeah. So um, I think, well, the area that I've worked in historically and traditionally is an area called market microstructure, which is all about how trading takes place in markets and how uh, parties interact, how technology is involved in trading, how people uh, are involved in trading, how information affects um, trading flows, etc. That's what market microstructure is about. I, um, I spent 20, 25 years doing research in market microstructure, loved it. And market microstructure and, and how people trade, that's all about, well, stockbrokers are at the epicenter of that. So the reason I was interested in that was because I started out in stockbroking um, and I had an understanding of uh, how trading worked uh, and, and how trading flows occurred. Um, and then uh, when I returned to universities, uh, I got an opportunity to do research on the thing I'd been doing for a living. Uh, it was just, just a natural thing for me. And I've, I've had a very enjoyable career um, doing microstructure research. In fact, the cyber attack type work I'm doing is really from a, a trading market microstructure perspective. When a company is that's listed on an exchange is cyber attacked, it's not just that its stock price falls by 5-10%. Um, people no longer want to participate in trading that company, so the liquidity dries up. Um, and so uh, the research I've done has really looked at that dimension. Um, and um, uh, it's just a natural extension of the work I've been doing, but on a new phenomena. So, you know, when I was doing my master, no, when I was doing my undergraduate, I sort of learned a bit about portfolio theory, and I didn't want to get into economics. And I found financial economics, and I fell in love with it. The minute I went into my master's program, mm. 25 years later, I'm still here. Mm. So. 
Whereas one thing that I always wanted to do right, bef uh, right before I start my master's program, at the back of my mind, I thought, I will make so much money learning how to trade in a master's program. But by the time I'm done, I'll be multimillionaire and mm. be retired in no time. Mm. And then I went through the program. I learned about, say, no, you can't. Efficient market hypothesis and all mm. the rest. I'm still working. Um, what would you say to anyone starting their career, students uh, thinking about finance, that they will become rich, etc.? And what are the ways to make money to, to have a decent living out of yeah. finance? So let's start off with what we teach uh, finance students in first in the first year, um, this this thing called the efficient markets theory, which is the idea that you can't make money in markets because prices reflect all information that's available. So any information you think you've got that's unique that you can use to make money is useless because it's already in the price. You've got nothing special. Well, we teach that to students in first year and then we challenge it uh, every, every year after that. Um, so so um, there are some markets that are hyper efficient. Um, I think foreign exchange markets are hyper efficient. Um, the most heavily traded markets that exist. Um, but then there are markets that are very inefficient and that people um, and, and institutions um, direct their attention to because there's money making opportunities. So this is, for example, stocks that are not the biggest on any exchange and hyper traded, but you know, something a bit smaller. Yep. Um, and uh, that that's, there's a lot more uncertainty about its value. This information is not as readily available. Um, and so there are segments of the stock market in which um, market efficiency is just nonsense. Mm. Um, uh, but then there's other markets in which uh, market efficiency doesn't, doesn't apply as well. So um, the key to making money in financial markets is to identify those markets and identify strategies for making money in those markets. And if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be talking to you and, and doing this tape. I'd be, uh, um, you know, out no, there trading are. on that idea. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, like you, I felt the same way. But recently, when I moved to Dubai, I saw, you know, when the the, um, the information asymmetry, which is in the stock market where you have all this technology around mm. you, everybody has the same information and you can't beat them, right? But in real estate market, that is different because as long as it's not uh, traded on the exchange, mm. but if you can buy a house, sometimes you don't have the same information set than the others. Mm. So in that sense, there is a market. And if you followed, say, the Dubai property market, uh, at some point, uh, it goes up by 100,000 dirhams per month mm. if you know how to select your asset properly. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, so the idea that um, there's information asymmetry, that's like this word. These are words that we use <laughs> when we teach students, but it's really simple. It's, you know, there's an asset. That asset can be anything, a share, a house. Or one person knows the true value of that asset one person doesn't. The two trade. When someone who knows something trades with someone who doesn't know anything, that person makes the money, the other person loses money. Simple, because the only time the person that's in the know will trade is when they can make money. So the key to 
um, being successful in financial markets is to work out whether you're in the know or whether you're not. Um, and and uh, yeah, that's just an old adage. Yeah. Um, I know that as a finance professor, you already have, uh, because by default, the Australian Academia have uh, a superannuation fund. So do you, as a finance professor, manage your fund or do you leave it to the experts? Or, and what are your uh, concepts surrounding self-managed super fund? Yeah. So um, as finance academics, I think we can't help ourselves. And we, we all trade. Um, it's, you can't be teaching trading and not doing it. Um, uh, you'd be a hypocrite uh, if that was the case. Um, but there's limits to it. Um, I don't have enormous amounts of time to develop trading strategies. Uh, and so uh, the, the greater part of my savings, for example, my super, that's just handed over to a money manager who invests in developing strategies. If I, I just don't have the time to, uh, to devote to effectively um, securing my retirement. Um, so, and that's the reason they exist. Yeah, yeah, because it's a full-time job. It is a full-time job. Monitoring yeah. and you name it. Yeah. Now, um, where do you think the trends are these days in the financial markets or for finance in general? Mm. So can you elaborate? So The, the market trends. So How will things change? Uh, yes, because um, let's say you look at... Um, Today's world, people are focusing on digitization, sustainability, mm -hmm. and then um, you'll find uh, companies following, trying to be labeled as uh, environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. They are adopting all environmentally friendly products and they need financing. Mm -hmm. And in the financing, because it's cheaper, they want to do that because it's got a cost initially mm -hmm. and Where's the benefit? The benefit is long term. Mm. So their share price will go up. Mm. And companies that don't invest short term will, f will get a value destruction and they will disappear in the long term. Yeah. So with that sort of trend in sustainability, mm. uh, the private sector is looking for students who's got the knowledge in sustainable finance mm -hmm. and then they are being hired mm -hmm. prior to the others. Do you think that is a valid uh, uh, notion? That's what, I mean, we're returning to the, oh, the theme sorry. that I was in, that we discussed before. But um, I think uh, it's, it's, there's no doubt that sustainable finance and understanding it and that particular segment of financial markets will continue to grow and thrive. Mm. Um, so fossil fuels still dominate um, in, in, in markets, oil, Coal. Coal is Australia's second biggest export. Um, uh, our biggest export is uh, refined oil. Um, so uh, fossil fuels will dominate for a long time yet, but increasingly we're shutting them down. Mm. Um, and therefore, you're right. It's a very long-term. Um, it's a very long-term uh, play, and companies need to focus on the short term as well as the long term. Uh, if I don't perform in the short term, I'm out of a job. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's an important balance there. And uh, sustainable finance, no doubt. 
uh, is important now and will continue to grow in importance. Mm. Um, and students need to equip themselves in order to understand that. Tell us something. Everybody is shouting or sometimes they don't even look at their credit card when they go to the petrol station. Mm. How is the uh, pricing of oil at the moment in the world market affecting uh, people in Australia? Yeah. So um, uh, the, the inflation rate in Australia, which is horrendous, it's the highest it's been in decades, one of the three key components of uh, or drivers of our exorbitant inflation rate is the price of oil. Um, uh, and governments are attempting to control inflation through increasing interest rates, the cash rate in Australia, um, the Fed in the United States, and that's damaging their economies. So um, the, the, the price of oil, which is still the dominant, one of the dominant energy sources, uh, is having a very, very pervasive effect on the US economy, the Australian economy, global economies, um, uh, and will continue to do so because it's fossil fuel. Um, it's, it's, has a, there's a finite amount of uh, oil in the world. Some of it's not discovered, but it's finite. Uh, and we continue to consume it at huge levels. So there will be a point where we run out of oil. There will be a point where we run out of fossil fuels. Um, and so increasingly, we need to think about how we wean ourselves off, off those and move into renewable sources. So electric cars that are powered not from electricity that's produced through fossil fuels, because that's just silly, but electric cars that are powered by electricity that's generated through renewable energy, solar power, wind power, um, and on all those alternative energy sources. Mm. So um, sustainable finance, that's about that and it's critical. Yeah. It's funny because um, um, here, when we moved here some time ago, oil price, when you fill up your tank, you don't bother because it's not a bother. Mm. And recently we've seen the price has increased here as well. So I would say on a full tank, it has increased by approximately, depending on the car size, approximately 100 dirhams. So that's a major. And on one hand, all price increase may not be good for uh, the community. Mm. And there is the same sort of uh, situation here with inflation, interest rates, etc. Mm. Um, but on the bigger picture, though, because UAE is a major exporter of oil, mm -hmm. so there's benefits coming for the country at the moment in terms yeah. of that. So you see a lot of developments happening in Dubai and the UAE in general mm. because of they we, we sell yeah. oil, so it's a, it's a good thing. And um, how about the, the interest rate situation? Is it alarming in Australia because it's about 4.99%? Global, global interest rates are alarming. Um, the good news is that um, uh, the, the inflation's, um, I wouldn't say it's under control, but it's diminishing from very high levels. Uh, and so, and it'll probably continue to do so, um, but um, central banks around the world are very vigilant. Uh, and if they sense that inflation start, will start to creep up again, or they see it creeping up, they will not 
hold back in increasing interest rates further. But I think um, in the you know the next year to two, um, reserve banks uh, and central banks will continue to be vigilant, will continue to hold interest rates high. Uh, and if they sense inflation, if they see inflation start to creep up, will increase rates. I think it'll be a while before we see uh, interest rates fall um, as a consequence. But, you know, time will tell. You know, what I'm, what I'm noticing is, uh, you know, simple basic financial mathematics says interest rate goes up, value goes down. Mm. But I'm seeing like there's a lot of resilience in the market because mm. despite them increasing, the Real estate not, prices are yeah. still rocketing up. So what's happening currently in the world? Why is, why, why is that um, mm. thing? Do you think it's something to do with COVID or what is it? Yeah. So um, real estate's a, a very unique kind of thing. And again, it's a finite resource. There's only a finite amount of real estate. Actually, there's a very finite amount of real estate that people really want. <laughs> yes. right? Everyone wants to be near a body of water. Yeah. And that real estate its price is huge. Uh, and then real estate that's in the middle of nowhere, well, no one wants to touch it, right? So it, um, so real estate has a finite, um, there's a finite amount of real estate, especially real estate that people want. World population's growing, migration's growing in many different countries, including Australia. Uh, and that puts pressure on interest rates. So uh, that pr puts pressure on real estate prices, regardless of what uh, interest rates are. People need somewhere to live uh, and they will not um, hold back from borrowing money to buy a place to live if, if, um, if they need to, or indeed um, uh, uh, rent. Um, but if, even if rentals are growing, then investors will step in and put pressure on uh, real estate prices because they need to acquire real estate to, to rent out. So um, it, yeah, it's a vicious circle, um, but... Uh, the, the idea that when interest rates ratchet up, uh, property prices should fall is just a misnomer. Property prices are not driven by interest rates. They're driven by supply and demand for the property. Um, uh, that's influenced a little by interest rates, but it's not the core driver. It's been a pleasure to have you at the University of Wollongong. We look forward to see you next time. And um, uh, bon voyage. Um, thank you very much. It's been fun uh, being on the show.